I don't know what they're talking about. Just because we're doing a Father's Day sermon a week late, I don't know what that's got to do with anything. <laughs> it seems like Father's Day to me. I don't know. But I, I didn't get this done last week, so I thought I'd do something about fathers um, this week, particularly since I've been reading a little bit about this recently. I think I'm in the wrong slide here. This, I, I looked on the Internet for a picture of fathers, and the second or third one was a picture of an interracial gay couple in bed, two, two men with their baby. And I thought, you know, Google, I'm just done with that. So uh, I should have said, okay, Google, anyway, but I didn't. Uh, so I just got a picture of my family out. This is a, I don't know how well you can see this. But this, is, this picture is from 1897. This is... My grandfather, when he was one year old, okay? This is my great-grandmother, and this is her husband, my great-grandfather, William Washington Worth Henson. I don't think you can see him over here is his brother. This is my great-great-grandfather, Jared Hames, here. This is, this is her father, as best I know. This is her father. So he was very old at that time. And uh, anyway, so this is a picture. If you, if you want to see the, this, this is a small, uh, this picture, this picture is actually 10 inches by 3 inches. I don't even know if they have a camera like that today that can take that wide of a shot and have it all in focus. But this is the Henson family, as best I know what it is, in 1897. Here's, again, my grandfather, my great-grandparents. This is... Over here is my grand, my great uncle. Here, this is another one of my. Well, he's my great, great uncle. This is my, another one of my. Uh, this is her brother right here. The preacher I'm always talking about, my uncle Ari Henson, great uncle. This is him right here in the front row, as a little boy. Some of these people just crept in from the woods. I'm not sure about this guy. And that's pretty much the way it was in Kentucky. This was in Kentucky back in 1897. So, but then there's a few others. You know, I don't know them. You know, but this lady looks pretty special. She looks like she's pretty proud to be there today. You know, it's interesting. People are the same, aren't they? It's very interesting to see this. But that, anyway, so that's, uh, I just put a picture of my grandfather and my great Great, my great-grandfather there and my great-great-grandfather on this, but I want to turn with you, I want you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And we're going to talk first briefly as much as we've got a lot to cover, maybe we probably won't get there, first about husbands and then about fathers. I don't think, as I think more about this as years go by, you can really separate the two. I know there are many husbands who are not fathers, but I, I think it all involves being masculine being male and what the Bible says about that. Those two things generally go together. I'm not trying to demean anyone who's a husband and not a father. But I do think they go together because what's demanded of the person, the man in each, each role is the same thing. In the context of really of, of, of Christ's work in the church, Paul says, wives submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. You've heard me say this before, but I'll keep repeating it. The most important words in this passage are the, is the word as here, even as, in some of your translations. 
because it doesn't just leave this submission, for example, in verse 22, unregulated. It tells that the submission of the wife is as to the Lord. That's the nature of it. That's the extent of it. And that's the relationship that she sustains to her husband. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. He doesn't say the husband's the head of the wife. He says he's the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. It defines the relationship in a very clear way, if you think about it for a while. And he is savior of the body. So the headship of the husband is parallel to Christ being the head of the church and the savior of the church. Therefore, not, not a tyrant, not a dictator, not an abuser. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wise be their own husbands in everything. Husbands, he says, love your wives. Now, this is the word agape here. The Bible does not tell the woman in direct language to love her husband in using the same word. When the Bible does say the wife woman is to love her husband in, in uh, Paul's writings, other writings, it's the word, a different word altogether. This is agape here. This word is to love unselfishly for the better of the other person, to love sacrificially for the benefit of the other person. That's what this word love is here. The husbands are to render their wife. When the wife is told to love her husband, it's the word philandros, or versions of that, which is to be to love him as a man. It's a man lover. So women have to learn to love men as men, not as girlfriends, which is what the world tells you, and a lot of marriage people tell you, that you're supposed to make a friend and have a, your husband supposed to be like a girlfriend to you. No. You have to love him as a man. He's not the same as you. He's a man. He's going to be different which is what's required of him to be. And so a, husband, a wife has to learn, and that's a learned thing, to love him because he's a man and as a man in all of his manhood. But the husband has to lay aside his male characteristics or use, no, that's wrong, scratch that. He has to use his male characteristics in a sacrificial way to his wife. That's why he's supposed to love his wife. How? Just as Christ also loved the church. That's the nature of the love. It doesn't get to be defined by Hollywood. John Wayne doesn't get to define this love. Nobody defines this love. Christ defines the kind of love a husband is supposed to have for his wife. And he gave himself for her. That's another characteristic of the love. That he might sanctify. That's to set apart as something special. And cleanse her. Improve her. Help her. With the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holding without blemish. So you men that go around with your buddies, talking about your wife as the old lady at home, I know you're joking, but usually behind humor there's something. She's not your old lady. She is a glorious person who is to be held in honor without having spot or wrinkle. This is how you're supposed to understand her, to be holy and set apart to you as something very, very special. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as, here's our word again, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife also loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. The the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. And it is his own body. The church is his own body. So understanding what the role of a husband is toward a wife, he has to understand that his wife is his own flesh. 
and he must love her as if she were his own flesh because she is his own flesh. That's why it means to become one flesh. We are members of his body, of his flesh and his bones. We are members of Christ. That's the same parallel as a man and his wife. This is a completely, utterly different definition of marriage and of love than existed in the ancient world. This is different than the Greeks and the Roman, any other society. This is different than what modern people say about marriage. Altogether, if it's understood properly. It's revolutionary. And he goes back then to Genesis and quotes Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, that is, because God made man and woman as to be two, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They become one. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, I would take that, maybe not as much as some others, to mean you can look at whatever Christ says about the church in this passage, you begin to apply apply it to this relationship. And that's way beyond the scope of this lesson. Then Paul summarizes this idea of a woman being in submission and a man loving his wife and being the head by saying, nevertheless, that each one of you in particular so love, that's the word as again, so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. These are dramatic verses. This is the most extensive commentary on the husband-wife relationship in all the Bible. And it's one that I would, when I teach about this, it's one I center my teaching around because of this concept of how it's defined. And I, I do believe, and if you've seen, if you, once you've seen these verses through the lens of love as Christ loved and be in subjection as the church is in subjection, once you see the, those as words, I don't think you'll ever be able to read this passage the same way again, nor should you, because I think that's the key to applying it to our life today. Now there's another passage like this over in Colossians 3 where the Bible says husbands love your wives, here's the sword agape again, and do not be bitter against them. One of the principles I use in interpreting these passages about relationships and maybe many others is that God is not telling us something that's natural about any of these relationships. God doesn't have to tell you to breathe or to eat because you do that naturally. He tells you what is not natural for you to do. And so when he says for a husband to love his wife as himself, I know something. That's not natural for the man to do. That's not his inclination. He loves his wife like he wants to love her, not as she needs to be loved, as he would love himself. And so men need to learn how to love a wife because it's not natural to them. And, and also, he tells the woman to be in subjection. It tells me, oh, no, women aren't some soft little sub- submissive things. Women aren't that, like that at all. I've been living with one for 47 years or 46 years. That's not the way they are. Not my wife, not your wife, not any woman. They have to learn to be in submission to their husband. Something they have to do because it's not natural for them to do it. Eve illustrates this perfectly, as we've been studying the book of Genesis, we'll see. And so these characteristics of the proper husband and wife relationship are meant to make us better people, help us to learn to be better people, not make us happy in some way. Because a lot of this, learning to love your wife 
as you should, learning to be the head of, of your wife as you should, are not pleasant tasks. They're not fun. They're not enjoyable. There's something that's against the grain. Now, I'm not going to talk about why very much this morning. That's not the context of it, but they, these two things go together. But one thing he does tell the man leading up to all of that to say this. He tells this man, do not be bitter against your wife. Do not, uh, one way, one translation is, do not exasperate your wife. That's this word for bitter. It means something that pricks or makes us uncomfortable, that's unpleasant, like vinegar. Is the idea here? Do not be bitter toward them. When men come in contact with a real woman and live with her, they eventually want to go down to the bar and get drunk, apparently. Okay? They eventually want to go play golf every Saturday. Now, you women think this is terrible, but you're causing that a lot of the time <laughs> because you're a woman, and he can't understand what you're doing. He doesn't get it. And some of you, the Bible's filled with passages about better live in a corner of a housetop than in a big house with a contentious woman. A lot of you are contentious women. Well, you think I'm joking? No. Very unpleasant. Sometimes, though, men, the reason they get that way is because of the way you treat them. There you go. That's the way it is. They get... The way that they get the way they get. And they're after you all the time because you need to be gotten after. Now, they're wrong. But the point of the lesson today is do not be bitter toward your wife because she's a woman. I think that's the meaning of this. Remember I told you the wife had to love the man as a man? You have to love your wife as a woman. She's not your buddy She's not your best friend. She's not your golfing buddy. She's not that. She's a woman. She's different than you in most all respects. And you have to come to love that and appreciate that, not be bitter about the fact that she's a woman. You have to learn to be a better person because of the difference between the two. Now, there's more to say, which we will in a moment about that. Notice what else the Bible says about husbands. Now, we could spend weeks on each of these, and if I teach a class on this, I do, but as you can well imagine. Notice what Peter says about it, 1 Peter 3, 7. This is an astounding verse. Not talked about as much as the other marriage verses, but I think it's an astounding verse. Husbands, likewise, dwell with, your, with them, with your wives. This is after he tells the women to dress appropriately for those women who profess godliness and with modest apparel and so forth. This is after that passage. He says, husbands, likewise, in the same way I'm talking to the wives, now I'm going to talk to you. Dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, I want you to focus for while I'm talking about this on that last phrase. Because whatever this passage says, whether you agree with my understanding of it or not, this passage says if you don't do what's in this passage, God will not listen to you as a man. Is that important to you? It ought to be. So pay attention to this passage. And if you don't like my interpretation, get your own. But this passage is significant to men. So you have to dwell with them with understanding, with knowledge. 
Some say dwell according to knowledge, with knowledge. This idea uh, that women are inscrutable mysteries and enigmas that can never be understood simply is not a biblical understanding of women. I think women push this out here so they can get away with whatever they want because we're just mysterious and we can do whatever we want. Husband goes, I don't understand that. Yeah, you wouldn't because you're a man. No, that's ridiculous. And the husband, see, the woman does that. That's her excuse for doing things without being accountable to, to get away with it because, after all, women are mysterious, can't be understood, female prerogative to do this. I don't buy that. I also don't buy the idea that men can say, well, she's a woman, so I'm not going to, I can't understand, I'm not going to pay attention to her. This is what men do. They just don't pay attention. They don't, they don't even look. They don't try to learn anything real about their wife. They don't, how do you learn about people? Well, you talk to them and you watch them. But men are busy talking to, if they talk, to somebody else and watching sports or whatever it may be. And so... They're not watching their wife. They're not talking to her. So they don't know her. She's a mystery. Now, I admit, any person that you live with, you're going to find out new things about them all the time. That's the joy of it, of living with a person and not an object or a robot. But you can come to understand things about the person that you live with if you want to. Do you want to? Well, as a man, God says you have to. You must spend time with your wife enough to understand her. Now, this involves honesty and integrity in the part of both people to come to some understanding of how it is, and you're going to constantly improve that. But you are required to dwell with your wife according to knowledge, which I think means you're going to have to be willing to have those kind of conversations which you may hate as a man. You're required to. Or come to understand and listen, pay attention and listen. And I admit, uh, we've been married for 46 and a half years or however long it is. I would say 46 years, 7 months, and 2, no, not not down to the hour. No, it's not like that. I'm just saying it's somewhere in the 46 plus years. So it's a long time. Not as long as some of you. Gary's been married 53 years. Uh, The Barkers, how many, you know, a long long time. Uh, Some of the others here are 50 years. Who did I meet? Recently was 70-some years, 71 years, 63 years. I forgot. What's that? Bill. Bill. Gary's parents, 70 years. 75, 75 years. Yeah. Now, that, that's hard to do just because you can't live that long. <laughs> you, know? you may reach a point you're just too tired to get divorced. I don't know. <laughs> but... Uh, the fact is, however long it is, you're going to have to spend the time to come to an understanding of this person. And it's going to change. But you have to spend the time. You have to do the talking and, and learning about this person. And then you have to understand her. You have to give her honor. Rather than the old, call her the old lady and denigrate her or push her aside because she's a woman and she's, in your view, weak or this or that or emotional, whatever words you want to use. And by the way, that's another, empower, that's another weaponized word, emotional. So men are abusive, women are emotional. I don't buy that either. Women use I'm emotional to mean I get to do whatever I want, don't hold me accountable because I'm emotional. 
Men get to use, I have a bad temper, I'm a man, so they get to do whatever they want, don't hold me accountable. Nope. Not according to the Bible, they don't get to do that. Emotional is not a, a license to do and act and say whatever you think towards your husband or your children or anybody else. Having a temper or whatever it may be is not an excuse or a license to act however you want to act. So we got to start applying these concepts to both sexes the same and understand how, they're, since they're humans, Whatever characteristics I see in women, I will see in men. They're just expressed as masculine traits and vice versa. Whatever traits I see in men that I like or don't like, I will see them in women. They will just be expressed in a female way. But we don't look there. And that's why so many men don't want to go to marriage counseling because they know it's going to be stacked against them and unfair from the start. And am I wrong about this, men? I'm not. That's why they don't because they know it's all stacked against them and that never works. And it, it won't work here. You must give honor to your wife. And it says the reason, as under the weaker vessel. Now, what this means, it doesn't mean, yeah, you, you can out-arm wrestle your wife or lift more weight or run further. That's got nothing to do with what Peter's talking about here. The fact that you're bigger and stronger. Because then you can make it, well, I know a woman who can crush you, you know, like a grape. Okay. That's got nothing to do with this. Why is she a weaker vessel? Because she has voluntarily put herself in submission to you, therefore she is more vulnerable or weaker in that. She's in the weaker position in the marriage. She's in the weaker position in society. She can be hurt more easily because she's a woman, and especially if she's put herself in subjection to you in marriage. You can hurt her in many ways that she can't hurt you, and she's weaker. And it was really true in the ancient world, particularly. Women had very few rights of any kind. And Peter says here that as a Christian man, you must look at that instead of pushing her down because she doesn't have the power that you think she has or the physical strength that you have. You must give her honor because she's put herself in subjection to you, because she's been willing to follow you and to love you. You give her honor. Now, this is where Christianity just didn't fit in the ancient world. It doesn't fit in the modern world. One of the reasons that mock, that. that Frederick Nietzsche rejected Christianity because it was a religion of weakness, he said, and for weak people. Because it was all about submission and subjection and obedience. These are weak traits, he said, and it's true. Elders in the church are not dictators and lords. They're examples and shepherds, not cattle drivers. And they're in a, we're all in a position, who's the, great, who's the greatest in the kingdom according to Jesus? The one who serves is in submission and serves. When you disrespect your wife because she is your wife and has agreed to submit to you in marriage and follow you and do well for you, you are, dis, you are disregarding the example of Jesus Christ. You're no kind of Christian at all when you take advantage of your wife's position as a wife over you or being a woman. You're in no kind of man at all when you do that because you're disrespecting the example of Jesus Christ, who had all this power, could have used it if he wanted to, but would not, served others. And when she does that for you, then you turn on her with disrespect and abuse. The Bible does give, gives no quarter at all for men to abuse their wives. In fact, this passage says, honor, this honor here is the opposite of abuse. And you do this as the weaker vessel. As being heirs together of the grace of life. 
In God's eyes, she is exactly as you are. In fact, I, I tell a young husband, I, I, you, you need to encourage the spiritual growth of your wife. You need to do everything you can to encourage her spiritual maturity and growth in Bible study and, and different things that she can do, events and worship and prayer. You need to encourage that. That can do nothing but bring you goodness because she's a joint heir of the grace of life to you as a husband. Now, you do all these things so your prayers will not be hindered. He pictures a kind of mutuality in marriage, that you are joint heirs together, all mixed up together is this word, of the grace of life. There's not this big separation because I'm the husband, I'm this and that, and she's not. That's the opposite, opposite idea of that. Now, the Greek view of marriage expressed by Demosthenes, we have mistresses for pleasure, concubines to care for our daily needs, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. This is Demosthenes, and that's pretty much been, that was pretty much the way the ancient world was in many societies. I think this is the way a lot of societies still are around the world. Go to the Caribbean islands, this is what you'll see. Go to some parts of, old, of Europe, you see this. It almost comes this way in the elite portions of American society, where these great you know, financiers and other Wall Street people and all these other people, they have their wives and they have their mistresses. You know, and nobody thinks anything about it. Paul says this, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a completely different model of marriage and male-female of masculinity. It's a completely different model of being a husband or father than that. And so this high ideal of marriage came from the Bible, not from Greek or Roman culture. And it still exists. Now, do people misuse what the Bible says about headship to subjugate their wives? They do. But we know from what Peter says, God's not listening to those men's prayers. Not hearing them. You can say whatever else you want to about headship. But when you do not give your wife honor and respect her, you are, you've lost what it takes to have God's favor in the marriage. So be careful. Now, un- unfortunately, see, I'll do that. I will say this. I'll put this chart up here, but I'll say this. I see kind of the opposite going on in human relationships, especially in American society in my lifetime. I see men who have abandoned the idea of being in control of the family or being the head of their house. Men have abandoned the idea. They've been pushed out by radical feminism, pushed out of being heads of the families because this is considered to be a horrible thing to even say that I'm the head of my family. They pushed out of that role of leadership and responsibility in the home. And they've willingly accepted it. That's what men do. That's what Adam did. God told him what to do. His wife came in and said, honey, we should do this. And he said, yeah, whatever you want, honey, do that. Isn't that what he did? And that's what God said he did. Because you hearken to the voice of your wife, curses the ground for your sake. You listen to her because it's what mama wanted. And if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And you did wrong, Adam. You were the head. You were supposed to protect your wife as a woman. You were supposed to protect her from Satan. You were supposed to lift her up. Instead, you abandoned her to her own desires because you didn't want to be responsible. This is the problem men have had from the beginning. 
Now, what that does, what happens then in the cycle of things, when men are pushed to the side, all that's left is testosterone and anger. And so they become increasingly hostile, withdrawn, sometimes violent, because that's all that's left to them. And so we see these two things work together. We see irresponsible men being pushed out of homes and society, and then we see them respond with violence and anger and hostility and, with more, and more withdrawal, more withdrawal, and then you know, more, and just a big cycle that goes on. This is what we see everywhere in our society because men will not live up to the commands that God gave them and women don't want them to. Well, whose job is it to do what's right? It's your job to do what's right. And if you're, you, you men have to do what's right, whether women want you to or not. I'm sorry to say that. That's just a fact of the matter. You have to do what's right and step up and be the head of your house in the right way, whether it's popular or not. We'll see that more in just a moment. Now here, here are the commands. Let's look, I think the whole list is up there. Look at the commands in these verses I just gave you. Be the head as Christ is. Love your wife as Christ loved. Nourish and cherish her. Become one flesh. Do not be bitter. Dwell with understanding and give her honor. I mean, you know, you, you could spend a long time on any one of those if you wanted to do some self-improvement, and you'd have a lot to think about, wouldn't you? That's what's required to be a godly man and a godly husband in this world. And I think these kind of, this attitude that's expressed in these applies to men who are single as well as who are married. Because this is God's definition of masculinity or manhood. This is how God's defined it for us and what he expects of men. He's just assuming it from the fact that most men will be fathers and husbands. That's why the commands are given. But it's not like men who are not married get to do whatever they want, be whatever they want. This is, what, this is the kind of character he expects from all these men. And so why did God design marriage the way he did, with a head and one in subjection and so forth and so forth? Well, because women need security. That's the most fundamental need that females have. It's expressed. They, they go about it a lot of different ways than men. but they need And men need security too, but not the same way that women do. And a loving head provides that. I think you see women who become content and satisfied and fulfilled when they have a man who is t- helping to take care of them and give them some kind of comfort. When they have a man who loves them as Christ loved the church, all the restlessness... The emotions, everything else calms down because they had what God said they needed. And then what do men need? Well, men need approval. They need a pat on the head from the time the little boys. Look, mom, no hands. Crash. Okay. And then our street was a long downhill road where we lived, and we would play our, we would all do our bicycle tricks all the time. And I was standing there one day watching my brother and his friend, you know, do their tricks. And and my brother comes flying down the hill. He stands up on the seat of his bicycle, steering it along, you know, standing up on the seat, takes one foot off. He's you know looking over at me, flies by. His friend comes by next, old Bobby Carlson. He comes flying by. And he gets up on his, standing up on his seat, and he just takes his hand and does like this. And he just went straight over backwards onto the concrete with a bare back, no shirt on, of course. And just came up bloody red all the way down, shoulders to the waist. It was so much fun to see this. We laughed for an hour. (coughs) Well, that's what boys do, but he was, look, Mom, no hands. Yeah, right. Okay, that worked out real well. 
This is what boys do. They want approval. A submissive wife, in the Bible way the word submissive is used, provides just that for him. And so he can relax. He doesn't have to beat, he doesn't have to beat people up and prove his manhood by insulting others and going around thumping his chest. Because he knows that in spite of what all you people say, he has a woman at home that loves him for who he is, understands and cares for him, and will do anything for him. And so he doesn't need to do all that. doesn't need all that other stuff. And it's especially good if you've got one that doesn't have to have a whole bunch of money and fame before she can be happy, who loves you and not your wallet. But you know, you can help that too. Because if you're the right kind of man, you can provide her with enough security in the relationship that she can. You know, I've told Judy, you may not understand what this means. And, and things go on even in the last some years. I have no idea what's going to happen in, the, in our life as things go by. I have no idea how some of these things are going to work out, where we're going to end up, who's going to take care of us to get old. But I can tell you one thing I do know, I'm going to be right next to you the whole time. Okay, that's one thing you can know. I'm going to be right next to you and you're going to be standing next to me. Whatever it is, good or bad, we're going to be standing next to each other. Now, I think that's enough for her right now. I believe that's enough. It should be enough. Because that's what humans really want, isn't it? That's what you really need. And I'm thankful for that very much. But you, we get caught up in all the other stuff about marriage and relationships that don't make any difference. So God tells each group what they need. And men can easily ignore and devalue their wives, and they can resent their wives or devalue them. But they can use their masculinity to threaten them or to intimidate them rather than love and protect them. We see this all the time, every day. The Bible teaches against this all the time. So why did God design marriage? He designed a man to be the provider for the wife. And men should accept this responsibility to be the provider for his wife, his children, his aged parents. And not expect their wives or parents to take care of them. What do we see around us today? We see grown men expecting their wives or parents to take care of them. Girlfriends, take care of them. It's shameful. And they're not happy. If they were happy, that could be one thing. But they're not happy about that. They're destructive. It's destroying them. So God designed all of these things to bring out the best in you. And, and you know, if, if they will, they can bring out the best in you. If you will accept this responsibility. Responsibility and honor or respect go together for a man. That's just the way it is. You want to be respected, you want to have honor, then you need to accept responsibility. And if you won't accept responsibility, if you're irresponsible, it's going to bring out the worst in you as a man and in your wife. You're both going to suffer the price for that or any other person you're with. You're going to suffer because you will refuse to accept responsibility. And, and this is an extremely important thing to get, get right. I, I may sound angry about that. I'm not angry. I, I'm just in, trying to be to encourage you to think about what this can mean and to teach your children these things. I have read this definition recently of biblical masculine. I love this definition. If you read from the guy that wrote it, you, you would think it's funny. But biblical masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Assumption here doesn't mean making an assumption. It means assuming, taking on. So biblical masculinity is the glad, happy, not the forced, taking on of sacrificial responsibility. I believe that's exactly right. 
I think that's exactly what Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians about the husband being the head of the wife. That's what he's saying here in this way. And uh, some men must, well, how do I get authority to act like this? Who's going to let me live like this? Well, here's what he says about that. Same guy. Authority naturally flows to those who will take responsibility. Authority routinely flees from those who seek to blame others. Now, that's true in the workforce, isn't it? That's true on your job. You've got somebody who may not be the boss, but they take responsibility and make sure things get done. Guess who you go if you need something done? Who do you go to? Go to that person. And you've got, you got a, somebody who won't ever accept responsibility. You stay away from them. You, you, you pull away. So authority, if you want authority in your home, if a man wants to be the head of his wife, the head of his house, and have authority in his home, to direct the home the way he thinks is right, he's going to have to take responsibility. That's what it means to be the head. It doesn't mean to be the dictator. It means to take responsibility for it, for how it goes. And the wife is supposed to accept you taking that responsibility, as hard as that may be for her. But it's going to flee from those who seek to blame mothers. So if you're the kind of man who always wants to point the finger at your wife or kids for why things are going bad and why you don't have enough money, why you have this... uh, Somebody else is going to take authority in that situation. It may be your wife. It may be somebody else. Eventually, it will be the police if you evade enough responsibility, but it's going to flee from you. And I believe that's exactly right. So uh, what's the best gift I can give my wife? Here's what he says. On an earthly level, the best gift you can give your wife is to be a true and faithful father to her children. That's the best you can give. And if you don't have children, you better at least give her the idea that if you did, you'd be true and faithful to them to her and them and that, and not try to push them away. What's the best thing I can do for my children? On an earthly level, the best thing you can do for your children is to love their mother. And you've heard that. I believe that's true. When I, when I as a man, show love and respect for, for my wife, it doesn't just stop with me and her. It goes way beyond me and her. My sons see that And it reverberates in their heart how they're supposed to treat all women and take responsibility for their life. It reverberates to my grandchildren. And maybe my great-grandchildren reverberates all the way down when you see that. When I treat my wife with respect, they see how they ought to treat their wife. And it reverberates to her. It reverberates to her family. And I can tell you as a father with married daughters, how that son of yours treats my daughter makes a big difference to me. So how I treat my wife has influence not just with her, but with my children and their spouses and their children. This is how good things start in society. and It's also how they end, you see. And I think there's a lot to that saying. So what's the best thing I can do for my children? Here's, a, here's a, the next best thing. I love this one. The next best thing, besides love their mother. Get a job where you have to work hard. Make sure you do, in fact, work hard. Providing their mother with the wherewithal to feed and clothe them and to provide them with all with a good godly education. There's a lot packed into that, knowing what this man says about it, because it's what I believe about it. That, yes, you do need a job, And you need to work hard in that job, not try to find always the easiest 
where you can escape any kind of work or drudgery. I don't necessarily mean a manual labor job, although that's fine. If that's what you have to do, then do that. My grandfather would do two manual labor jobs at one time to take care. And he still didn't have any money. And then you do work hard and you provide the mother the wherewithal, as, P, as Paul told Titus, to rule the house, to, to, to be the house ruler. <coughs> to take the money that you make and with that money take care of the children and you with what she does as, as the homemaker. I know that's a rather archaic idea, but that's what, it's just archaic because we don't believe what the Bible says anymore about it. But that's what Paul says should be done. Now, then the wife has her responsibilities, the husband has hers, and so forth. Well, now look, our time is way over, and I have another, uh, you know, bunch of slides on being a father. So we're not going to do those today. Aren't you happy? Uh, I would say I have self-control, but it's still five minutes to 12, so there's no self-control there. Not even going to brag myself about that. But we do appreciate you listening today. do appreciate your consideration of these things. This is a big thing for men to accept. And the tendency then is either to shirk it or to become a tyrant. And neither one is acceptable to God at all. I don't think either one brings love in the home at all. Brings something else. And God tells us this very plainly. So men... I urge you to step up to the plate, whether you think the people around you like it. With God's help and with his guidance, you can be the kind of man you ought to be. And you can be a good husband and a good father. So we're going to sing this song here as we close our, uh, this part of the service this morning. Number 767, Who at the Door is Standing. And if we can help you by baptizing you into Christ this morning, if that's your desire, for the remission of your sins, if we can help you this morning, by praying with you about a weakness or a sin. Let us know about that. And we're ready to help you this morning. All you got to do is come down to the front. Let's stand and sing.